1: Get the house you want with the payment you want at buywithconrad.com. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this at buywithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. The first step to buying a house is buywithconrad.com.
2: the stories of briscoe and bradshaw i would be bradshaw and that would be the wwe hall of famer oklahoma's favorite son mr gerald briscoe and we have got one of hollywood's biggest stars he hosted snl by the age of 30 he became the youngest writer evp creator for disney they had ever had he's a legend and his father is the funniest man to ever walk on god's green earth if you listen to richard pryor and some of the old guys who certainly knew he
0: is mr freddie prince jr freddie thanks for joining the show john thanks man i'm not even joking that's the the kindest introduction i've ever gotten ever period so thank you very much man appreciate that
2: well i meant every word of it we're so happy to have you on the show it's it's we've been wanting to get you on for quite some time and very excited that you agreed to it
0: yeah well we've been working together a little bit now and so it's good to actually uh get to i see your face more frequently that's right. We're doing a little, uh, Mr. Briscoe was involved a
2: little bit as well. A little, I guess, secret project or whatever. Secret. It is or, it's
0: still a secret for now. Uh,
2: it's still a secret for now. People will know soon. Uh, I, I
3: think uh, I talked to one of the executives today and it's just right around the corner too. I didn't realize it was coming up so quick.
0: Yeah, man. I'm excited. I'm excited. Freddy,
3: Freddie, man. It's great to see you. It's been about 10, 15 years since, since uh, we've, we've got to share each other's company. So, this is the best way we could do it for now, man. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in person, but man, we had a good time. And Freddie, I can't tell you how much you added, added to our, our group of, of people backstage there and how enjoyable it was to work with you. Thank you, sir.
0: Um, I, I can't thank you enough for that. You and I had some really good times together and I loved getting to know you uh, much more than I enjoyed getting to know Bruce. And uh, <laughs> that's all, <of>
3: us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> And I just, I, I'm so happy to see your face, man, and and hear your voice. So, I am thrilled to be here, man. I can't wait to talk with you guys.
3: Hey, Freddie. You know, of course, wrestling is the main topic that we got here. But you're so diverse and everything that you've done. But you Know your upbringing was, was really unique. You're around some of my legends, you know, mean Gene LaBelle, I mean, yeah, so Uncle G, uh, Chuck Norris, all, all those big time, uh, you know, uh, Bruce Lee. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. You, made I know
2: you, you got your rib broke by Chuck Norris,
0: right? At Fort, that's
2: the greatest. Thing ever.
0: So, so, uh, Bruce unfortunately passed away before my time, but. When I was a young man, uh, my father charmed this man named Bob Wall. And Bob was the man who trained with Bruce and helped train Bruce when Bruce came to America. And Bob was the one who taught like all the Hollywood tough guys how to fight. He trained Steve McQueen. He trained James Garner, like all the old school tough guys. And my dad used to always was good friends with Muhammad Ali and he would spar with Ali and Ali would like legit pepper him up and bust up his face and send him home bleeding. So my dad wanted to learn how to fight. He met Bob Wall. Bob taught him, um, the left, the check hook. It wasn't called the check hook back then. Uh, that was developed a few years later, but the left hook. And when they were in Ali's living room, uh, in his California house, my dad, fooling around, caught Ali, and Ali, because the couch was behind his legs, fell backwards. And my dad throws his hands up. Ali's nose has blood. He runs to the bathroom. He's not hurt. Gets a towel, wipes the blood off Ali's face, gets in his 75 Corvette Stingray, hauls ass home. And Ali, meanwhile, is calling the house where my mom was living saying, Tell that boy I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill that boy next time I see him. My mom has no idea what's going on. My dad's not home yet. She's like, he runs in the door. She's like, Muhammad Ali said he's going to kill you. What's going on? He's like, no, look, look, it's his blood. It's his blood. And he framed it on purple. It looks like a war medal. It's on purple crushed velvet (laughs) with mahogany frame around it. And it says June it was the day before his birthday. So it was either the 21st or the 23rd. I mix up his and my grandma's. Uh, 1975, Ollie's blood on a little bronze placard. And my mom still has it to this day. So that's a long story to say he charmed this man, Bob Wall. And when my dad tragically died in 1977 at only 22 years old, Bob and all these like old school tough guys in the valley here in Southern California circled the wagons around me. Bob had two daughters. They hated karate. He saw me as this sponge that he could just throw into a sea of of martial arts and then squeeze me to see what comes out at the end, right? So I met Gene LaBelle when I was eight. He taught me how to choke kids out and told me to do it to my friends and got me in a lot of trouble. (laughs) Chuck, when I won my first karate tournament, I thought I was hot stuff. And I'm sparring with my godfather and you know, trying to be all quick and do my boxing stuff because that's why I won. Back then the taekwondo guys couldn't box. So I'd get inside and just pep them up. And he goes, Oh, so you think you're good? We were in Tarzana, California. And him and Chuck are like, they're like you two. They're just they were like big frat guys. My godfather Bob just passed away a couple months ago, but they were literally like frat guys till the day, till the day he passed. They lived on the same street. This is before Walker, Texas Ranger. And we walk down the street. It's on Donna, if anyone wants to go see Chuck's old house. And we go in the dojo and I'm throwing my jab with Chuck Norris. But I just called him Uncle Chuck. So I'm throwing my jab and I leave it out too long. And he throws a kick and he pulls the kick. He's not trying to hurt me, but it's Chuck. So his his shins are just built different. The bone density is different. And he hit what a lot of guys call the floating rib, which is this like soft rib underneath. And I literally dropped like a diver off a high dive, just boom, to the floor. And my godfather's dying laughing, I can't breathe. It's like when a kid can't breathe, and they're like, I can't, can, can. it's like that, right? So he just thinks I got the wind knocked out of me. Then we're walking back to his house, and I'm hunched over a good 40 degrees the whole way. And Chuck's like, "The are you okay? And he's like, oh, I'll be fine. I'm like, oh, I'm okay, I'm okay. And he doesn't even know he hurt me. We get home, and my godmother, Lillian, who's still alive, who's five foot one, little Italian woman who married this six foot two, awesome karate champion, Bob Wall. He was the guy Bruce Lee beat up in all the movies with the scar down his eye. And uh, she runs the house, like she runs the family. He did, he would do what, he's gone now, so I could say this, he won't beat me up. But he would do whatever she said. She is the boss, right? So I walk in right away. She's a mom, she knows I'm hurt. She's like, oh my God, let me check you out. And she's feeling me. She's like, Bob, he has a broken rib. He's like, oh, ah, no, he's fine. She goes, Bob, he has a broken rib. And I had to go back home the next day to, to my mother. It, the, the old saying, it takes a village. It, a village raised me. It wasn't just my mom. And so this is when I was living with him. And uh, she said, we can't send him home. Kathy will kill you. And Bob's like, ah, no, she'll be okay. And she was like, no, Bob, my mom used to drink a lot and own guns. Okay, so <laughs> Lillian said, no, Bob, she will get a gun and she will kill you. So he had to like sweet talk her to get me to stay out an extra three weeks so that I could start to heal up and get better. But so yeah, I had a I had a unique, a unique experience and a unique upbringing by a bunch of psychopaths. But they really took good care of me and and always kept me humble. And they never let any evils, I don't want to curse, but any evil people in into my life when I was when I was coming up and when I was making my bones in Hollywood, like there were plenty of guys who tried it. All of a sudden, they were simply no longer in the picture. So they they really took great care of me to make sure I didn't fall down any of the 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 hills that my that my father stumbled down.
3: Did you know that Gene LaBelle was such an influential man in, in the sport of professional wrestling when you were? hanging with him so check this out in Gene's house he has a
0: poster from like the it had to be early 70s of him and Ted DiBiase teaching professional wrestling school and it looks like an old fight poster with the two of them and I remember asking him because I was a huge fan. I always liked the bad guys in wrestling because on free TV, the bad guys always won. Vince would make you buy the pay-per-view to see the good <laughs> guy. And we would had that kind of dough, so I just wasn't seeing the good guys win. So I would always pull for the bad guys, and I loved the million-dollar man. i go, oh, my God, Uncle Gene, you know – you know, the million dollar man, how do you, how do you know the million dollar man? He goes, I've choked him out more times than <laughs> he's choked out professional wrestler. And he's just, Gene is the toughest son of a gun i would ever met in my life. He has two tendons everywhere you and I have one and that's, he's a genetic freak. That's why the Olympic team didn't want to let him compete. And he said, oh, okay, let me compete against all of you. And if I beat all of you, <laughs> Then you'll let me on, and they're like, well, "Yeah, okay." So he kicked his shit out. Excuse my language. He he beat the crap out of the whole team, and then said, "I don't need to be on this team." Bye, and <laughs> just left like that. They wrote a book about him. He said, "Literally, like the deadliest man on earth, or something." He just the everybody googled you, Lebel. He had the
2: yeah. fight against Milo Savage, and when he choked yeah. the guy out, they thought they'd killed him. The place on the It's right. an incredible uh, video. Yeah. <laughs>
0: They thought yeah, that's killed. my Uncle nobody, Gene. nobody ever
2: seen somebody get choked out and, and go unconscious. And he caught uh Milo Savage and choked him out. And they thought he killed him.
0: John, when I was in the third grade, I was literally running around recess yelling, When in doubt, choke him out. Because that's what <laughs> Uncle Gene would always say.
2: <laughs> and he had the legendary depends on he uh believe, you know, how far it went. The altercation was Stephen Seagal.
0: Um, I'll tell you the exact story. I was at his house when he got fired. Really. Oh Oh my God! Yeah, please tell the story because there's so many urban Mm. myths about that. uh, What happened? Gene doesn't get mad at me for telling this. He loves it. Um, So, he was on the set of Under Siege, and he was the fight choreographer. And to know Gene is to know he's been a stuntman in Hollywood since before I was born and I'm 46. Okay. So he's always the old redhead guy that gets beat up and somehow can still take a big time bump at 137 years old. (laughs) That's like
2: Frisco.
3: Thanks, John.
0: (laughs) So he's, he has a stopwatch to make sure that his guys, when they're doing their fight choreography are in time for what the director's needs are. He always wears it around his, his, uh, his neck. he did it on every, uh, every movie that he did this on. And Steven was going way too hard. Oh, I'll tell you a great story for this dude. Steven was going way too hard on his, on all of Gene's guys and not pulling his punches and just straight up wailing on him and saying, I want it to look real. And Gene had a confrontation with him. He said, It's the director's job to make it look real. That's why he put the camera here. And that's why he puts the camera here. It's, your, it's my guy's job to make you look great. And it's your job to protect my goddamn man. And Steven didn't like that. And so he had a problem. Gene went back to the director. They did the take again. Steven didn't pull any punches. And uh, Gene takes off his stopwatch that he times the fight thing for. He puts it around the neck of his assistant. And he says, keep this. When I get back, I'm going to be fired. (laughs) And he walks up to Steven, front chokes him, yanks him in rips him up like this and Steven pissed his pants and dropped to the ground. And Gene comes home pissed. I'm in his condo with his wife and my godfather, okay? And he had Playboy TV back in like that back in the <laughs> 80s on a satellite and they would I would sneak in and watch it from time to time. I loved going to Uncle Gene's house. And so he comes in and he's pissed. I mean, he comes at the door swings open. Blah. And I hear him tell the whole story, cussing like a sailor to Bob. I don't. I think Pat Johnson was there, who was another old school martial arts badass. Um, uh, Burleson was there, a whole gang of just old school killers. And all these guys called Steven out on the cover of Black Belt magazine and said, we think you're bullshit. We all want to fight you. And it was all because of this under siege incident. And he said, well, I only fight to the death. And all of them, Gene first said, "Okay," <laughs> and he never fought one of them. He didn't want any of those guys. Those guys were stone killers. Pat Burleson was a stone killer. Like my, I remember Dennis Alexio was the ISKA kickboxing heavyweight champion of the world. He played Van Dam's brother in the kickboxer movie. This dude was legit as hell. And when Pat Burleson would, or when I think it was, was it Pat Burleson? They just called him Burley. But when he came in the room, like Dennis was like on him, like it was God, like it was God. And this was the heavyweight champion of the world. Like he just beat Bronco's Sicatic's ass. Benny, the jet. Uh, well, I don't think Benny was ducking him, but Benny had to pull out because of an injury, Benny, the jet or Kitas, didn't duck anybody, but that's what Dennis was saying. And he was just worshiping these guys. So those were all the dudes that kind of looked after me and took care of me. I mean, my first judo class was with Gokor. That was Jean's world champion student and he looked like what a Russian mobster would. I mean, he was his neck was as big as his waist. Like <laughs> he was horrifying and he's like, "Let me show you how to throw someone." <laughs> like, "Oh my god, please don't throw me. Is there another way to learn this?" But it it was awesome and they 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 turned me into a pretty good human being. So after the under
2: siege, did, did Gene LaBelle get blackballed or did, or was that something where he, people were like, Oh, it's pretty cool. No, they loved
0: him. him. They loved him for it. He became infamous for it. He was on, he was still doing stunts. When I did the last season of 24, he was doing stunts on it. <laughs> and, and all the guys, there were like, Hey, Gene, under siege. That's yeah, yeah, that guy. Like every, they all love him. Everyone celebrated him. You know, so it turned out to be a, a pretty bad dude when, when it was all said and done, as far as like the type of human he he wanted to to be and was comfortable with the world knowing. So Gene didn't have any problem with people knowing the truth because Gene's not a bad dude. You know what I mean? He's just a tough dude. Did you,
2: did they tell you any stories? I mean, yeah, yeah. Chuck Norris there who had a legendary sparring sessions What I heard with Bruce Lee. They tell you any Bruce Lee stories because these guys obviously had to know Bruce
0: Lee. So Bob was the one for that. And Bob was really, I call him my godfather and I call him uncle Bob, but he was my godfather. He really looked after me when my dad died and when my mom had to figure out what she was going to do with her life. You know, I didn't have atypical parents. I had godparents looking after me legitimately. I was living in their house. So Bruce was his whole life and he was his I mean, in a lot of ways it was, they were, like that they were best friends you know it was a lot like the two of you they did everything together when when bruce came to southern california and they found each other they, they would spar and my godfather is a big man okay he's about your height and he was in great shape and he was trained to beat the hell out of people in in Sudo, which was the korean foundation that chinese taekwondo was built on and and rests upon today He dude was no joke, which was why Bruce put him in all his movies and would would beat his ass because it looked great to beat up a bigger man. But he would tell me stories when they would go through China that he had a price on his head as far as the movie studios in China went. And if you could beat him and this isn't a rumor, if you could beat Bruce Lee in a street fight, you would get a movie contract. And so the way they would challenge him, they would. My God, I'll never forget this. He goes, we were walking down the street. And Bruce just stopped and looked at this guy and the guy crossed his arms and tapped his foot three times. And Bruce said, hold on, I have to take care of this. Walked right across the street, beat the living hell out of the guy, walked right back. And my godfather goes "Dude, what what was that? And he told him about the price and he goes anybody who crosses their arms and taps their foot like that. That's how they're challenging me. He goes, I have to answer that. And so he just went and beat the crap out of the guy. And I was like, what? So my, the way I learned about Bruce Lee was he was this like Greek demigod right like he had magical powers he was half human and half something like apollo or something right and so in the 90s when i became a teenager and like gangster rap became the cultural wave where every white kid wanted to be black i was only white kid that wanted to be asian like i I thought (laughs) I, i was so obsessed with with chinese and japanese and korean culture and if they would have had that in history class, John would have got straight A's instead of D's. <laughs> yeah, Bob Wall tells it
2: has the greatest video out there. I just I don't know what it's on, but it's, it's it's talking about your dad. It's about a five and a half minute video, and he tells about how much he loves your dad for one. But he tells about the first time your dad talked him into having a sparring session with him. When he knocked your dad out. He beat my dad's ass all the time. Yeah. And and your dad wakes up and says, what happened? He goes, well, you got knocked out because you're not ready to have a sparring session with me. I tried to tell you that. He goes, Okay, let's go again. Goes well. You're not ready now either. (laughs) And he knew right then. He knew right then that this there was something special about your dad. And then when Ali came down and wanted to meet your dad, that's when he ended up sparring with Ali. I mean, yeah, man. I mean, you guys, your family sparred with Muhammad Ali (laughs) and Chuck Norris.
0: That's not normal. I've sparred with Fernando Vargas and a few other pro boxers, too, over the years. You know, I, In New Mexico, Johnny Tapia was my boxing coach, for crying out loud. And he he literally had a tattoo, La Vida Loca, across his stomach. The dude had been legally dead. He, had been, he would only win fights when he'd go to jail because it was the only time he was sober. He'd literally come to the boxing gym and be like, don't be like me, you guys, okay? I got to go to jail, but I'm going to train harder. When I come out, I'll be world champion again. And he would every time and it was only because that was the only place he couldn't get drugs was because he, he was locked up in solitary but so these were like I, I got really blessed with the with the male role models in my life as crazy as, as they all were and Bob was the craziest of them all and and influenced me more than any of them but I still I wouldn't be I wouldn't be where I am today if it would have just been me and my mom. She's a gypsy, you know? She's the balance to their psychotic, you know, let's go find a a linebacker at UCLA and fight him. You're 56. Who cares? And then he would go and do it. Like, he's just crazy, man. I still talk about him like he's alive, but he's crazy.
2: That's just insane to me, that these guys. Chuck Norris, who's such a legend now. And all all the Chuck Norris jokes, you know, like –
0: Oh my God! He no, and no one will ever top that. No one will ever get to be. There's people who've never seen a Chuck Norris movie that'll be like, "Yeah, but the Bigfoot's searching for Chuck Norris doesn't believe he's real." Like, <laughs> you're like you're a third grader. What are you talking about? So yeah, okay, Chuck's what the did man. Chuck
3: Norris, think about all these jokes and everything. You know,
0: internet?
3: oddly enough, the last time I saw him, I didn't.
0: Would have been the perfect time to ask, and I never even asked him. Because we usually just go back to when I was a kid. Like everyone hated me at this karate tournament out here because I showed up with, he was the lightweight kickboxing champion of the world, Pete Sugarfoot Cunningham (laughs) and, (laughs) and Chuck Norris and Bob wall and the referee from the karate kid with the big mustache. That's Pat Johnson. He shows up and the, theme of this like the color code is exactly the same as the karate kid so you every kid there wanted to whip my ass there were guys trying to get me to go into the open weight just so they could get their hands on my 150 pound ass I think I was like 14 years old or something like oh no you're good you should be an open weight I'm like yeah right bro I'm five seven I'm six one now but I was a little dude I didn't grow till like I got older you know They all wanted to kill my ass. And these guys are all in there saying, that's why we came. You need to know this. You're going to be a target. You got to stay sharp. If you relax, they're going to kill you. Just like trying to prepare you for life. So when I got into this business and everyone hated me because they thought I was getting opportunities because of my dad, it didn't matter. Like I was a shark, man. I would be in acting class. And if I heard guys had auditions, if they were auditions that I couldn't get in on, you bet your ass I would show up. And the first name they called who didn't answer, I'd go, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I, I, like, I, you know, th- those guys just sharpened everything. I, I burned Ryan Phillippe on a roll for that on House of Yes because he showed up late. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm Ryan. And they were like, okay, go on in, Ryan. And so I go in and a young activist for this movie called The House of Yes. And the director was this guy, Mark Waters, who ended up directing Mean Girls and and a bunch of other movies. He's a really cool dude. And I go in and I read the scene and he goes, "Oh, that was really good. I said, thanks. He goes, you're not Ryan Phillippe. And my I checked my shoelaces, right? Like, I just shame right away. I just didn't know. I go, I, I'm sorry, man. It's just, you guys wouldn't see me, and I didn't know what else to do. So I just, you know, I'm sorry. I'll leave. And I left. And I should have known, like, they have the photo of the actor. Ryan's this, like, <laughs> sexy-looking James Dean guy. And I'm like, hey, hey, what's going on? So I leave, and my manager calls me, and he goes, did you audition for House of Yes. And I was like, yeah, I'm thinking I'm going to get like blacklisted or something. And he goes, dude, they just offered you the part. I was like, what? Are you shooting me? They said, yeah, they love Ryan too, but you look more like Parker than he does. And so they're picking you. I was like, you got to be kidding me at work. So I did it all the time after that, all the time.
3: That just showed me you had the physical skills of an MMA fighter, but you had the mentality of a <laughs> professional wrestler way back then. <laughs> That's right. That's
0: right.
2: Thank you. Thank you. You know, Bruce uh, is, is also a karate legend too in every hall of fame that there is. I, I just found out the other day when I was talking to Bruce, because I called him about his latest Hall of Fame. He's now in four karate Hall of Fames. Bruce Pritchard. What, what?
0: How much did he pay him to get in those to <laughs> get in those get. halls?
2: That's what me and Mr. Briscoe are trying to find <laughs> out too, because so this could you know, be
0: like those those stars on the Walk of Fame. Like those aren't awarded to you; people buy those for people. Like it's a it's a purchase thing. My dad has one because George Lopez bought him a star on the Walk of Fame. So I think someone might be buying Bruce into these Hall of Fame. He is working for
3: a Connie, that podcast guru guy. But we'll Jerry, get this.
2: Too. I just asked him. I said, "Who all's in this Hall of Fame?" It's like Superfoot Wallace. It's
3: Bob Walls. It's Chuck Norris and, and Bruce, Bruce Pritchard. What does rhyme in this Yeah. Jerry, when I was
0: growing up on the cartoons in between like commercials, they would do these little animated things. They would go, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> and, you would, and kids would figure out like, oh, it's a strawberry in an apple orchard. That does not That's Bruce in the martial arts hall of fame. <laughs> so when I called Bruce the other day, I'm, I'm I'm asking about this
2: picture that I saw on the internet of him in in another Hall of Fame. And he's like, well, you know, I I did a lot of karate tournaments when I was younger. uh, Bruce, you're in the Hall of Fame with Chuck Norris. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Uh, Is that a shoot? He's in the Hall of Fame with Chuck Norris?
2: Yes, it was Chuck Norris, Superfoot Wallace, Bob Walls, all those guys are in the Brady, hall.
3: Help us, help us here, Doc. Hey, I've never I've never seen up.
0: Bruce fight. He might be super legit. Maybe, maybe we don't know. He's like a you ninja know, turtle. I, I've
3: seen trophies in his house. Of course, when I when I visit his house, the first thing he wanted to show me was his trophies. Well, but you, you can, know, you can you buy trophies from a trophies. You yeah. can put any engraving yeah. you want. Yeah. Universal
0: <laughs> world
2: <laughs> Interdimensional
3: champion. Until I see old footage of him winning tournaments. you know. gotta,
0: Exactly.
3: You got to see the tapes. You got to see the receipts. <laughs> exactly. So, Brady, what, what, what really sparked you into professional wrestling? You know, you were doing all this legit shoot stuff, and here here's this uh, form of art here playing on your TV set. And what, what TV were you watching back in those days?
0: This is the easiest question. My grandma's Puerto Rican, bro. Like,
3: I
2: I love the term Hungarian. (laughs) That was my dad.
0: Yeah, uh, I I took it from him to put it under my corporation to kind of honor him. But that was his joke. His his dad was really German, not Hungarian. But (laughs) German-Rican didn't sound good. So he (laughs) just said he was Hungarian. So it was Hungarian. But when I was a little boy, my mom would send me there so that I could learn about my father's half of the family and also so she could work stuff out we found out later um but uh my grandma was obsessed with it to the point where i'm not even joking on this she stopped talking to my wife because my wife did a movie with the rock and the rock turned his back on the people and was (laughs) the corporate champion Like it was. And I literally was like, grandma, like, you know, that I worked there, you know, that I wrote for some of these people. I I literally wrote for one of the Rock's cousins and and like trying to help her out. And she goes, Freddie, he had a choice and he chose corporate and hung up the phone. I'm not lying to you. She died having never spoken to my wife ever again, once she found that out. And I'm like, Grandma, that movie didn't even get theatrical distribution. Like eight people in Cannes, France saw it. And that's it, it was four hours long. Nobody wants to sit that long through a movie. She didn't care, she wasn't trying to hear it. So that was the first person who introduced me to it. We went to a match in San Juan and they had a cage around the ring. And I was like, Grandma, is this, they're gonna have a steel cage match? And she goes, no, there's no steel cage match. I said, "There's a cage the around." Her. She said, "She said that's to keep the people out if the wrong person wins." I was like, "Wait, what?" And I, the I share stories were crazy. all the
3: time. I share stories all the time with John about the crowds down and say, "One well, brother back in the '70s. I mean, it was it would You talk about wild.
0: I mean, <laughs> in the '80s, it was crazy. She yeah. had to cover me up. Like it was." The things they would throw at people were wild, man. Like, I didn't even know how they got that stuff in the arenas. <laughs> it was crazy. They
3: went in the bathroom. Brother,
0: <laughs> those, those bags were full of nothing good, man.
2: When we used to wrestle at the Cow Palace, especially back in the day, you know, when you're when you're a heel, uh, you, you have to do that fake entrance. So I, as soon as the music would start playing, I would go out and I'd take one step out and then I'd back up and, I, and shit would just rain down. The <laughs> as soon as, as, as they go to reload, I'd take off.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's genius. I swear. I've never heard that before. That's oh, yeah. so great. Yeah. I'd give them the, yeah. I'd give me the old Iggy
2: and, and the shit. they would just oh, my me, God. Maybe, maybe wait in the whole, the whole show to throw stuff on top of me, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: that's amazing he oh got my god to reload. <laughs> john that's so next level they there's a rest i haven't seen it but everyone says there's a wrestling show they love that i would love called heels they should do that they should do that for that's such a, like a inside next level psychology of wrestling kind of thing man they should uh, they should listen to your podcast that's what they should do. <laughs> it. listen to me mr briscoe that kid that kid uh, who, cr- who created the show was the one that did the bit with with Cody with Stardust, the superhero guy. What was his name? Oh, really? The Green guy. The Green Arrow. The oh, Green uh, Arrow. Uh,
2: what was, Steve,
0: wait, Hurricane? Uh, no, 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 He The guy was an actor who did oh, it. Oh, the Green Arrow. You said um, Amell, Stephen amel Is that who it yeah. is? Stephen amel He did, amel, he did a, a wrestling angle with Cody and was jumping off ropes and stuff. He did all right. Yeah, he did. He did really well. Yeah, he did really well. He's a big wrestling fan, that kid. You should get him on. I'll hassle him. I don't know but I'll find him. <laughs> Cody, Cody
2: was so proud of me, but, but he took care of me. I met him in, in uh, Long Island, and he, he brought me over, and he goes, you don't watch any of the superhero stuff, do you? And I said, no. He goes, okay. So he gave me like a quick five-minute introduction. to. So as, as soon as I met him, I go, hey, man, I love your stuff. I knew every one of them. He's like,
0: and he and cody just had you ready just layered in.
2: Bullet pointed perfectly yeah he's the one for that he's yeah.
0: the one he called me when my wife did uh the the tila voice on the new he-man cartoon and he was the, like the first person before people with kids before before my cousins that our kids would text me he, ta- he was like dude i have masters of the universe the original toys collected um is are they releasing new toys and when are they coming out? I was like, dude, I, how do I know? I, I, I didn't even watch the show. I'm 45 years old, 46 years old.
2: The other day when we were together with Cody, I think he broke his heart when he said that you, you're thinking about not doing some Star Wars thing because he's such I a big know Star Wars. he's right. such
0: a he's such a nerd on the inside. I love him, man. He was saying I voiced a cartoon and he was saying if there was a live action. I should do it. And I'm like, bro, I'm 20 years too old to do that. It wouldn't look right. And he was like, screw that. It should be you. I'm like, I promise you it's not. And he said, oh, you think they'll go for someone younger? And I said, no, they talked about it. I just said no. And he got so disappointed. Yeah, he was was disappointed. But he he was also like, dude, I go, I've already been in Star, Star Wars. And it's not like they pay you anything. It's all about like, oh, it's the honor of being in Star Wars instead of money. And it was like, this, That's is right. still, this is still show business, right? Like, which word is bigger here? But, okay, I guess when no. I'm wrestling in Europe for Otto Vance,
2: a guy went in one time he goes, Otto, I, I really need more money. My family needs it. I, my family here with me. I really need more money. Otto goes, I cannot give you any more money, but I can give you a title. And the guy goes, Okay. <laughs> I just <laughs> I took it. <laughs> I made mean, the guy like European Southern Junior Champion or something.
0: Hey, his name <laughs> meant something though. He get a, sp- a sponsor, <laughs> That's or right? Or just sell the title? <laughs> exactly.
1: If you could change one thing about your home, what would it be? A new kitchen, a new master bath, maybe put in a pool. What if you could do it with no money out of pocket and cheaper monthly payments? SaveWithConrad.com can help, and you can even skip your next two house payments. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender, SaveWithConrad.com.
2: Freddie, you know what's amazing to me? I was watching some stuff getting ready for this show uh, of your dad, and he was just brilliant. I I just, you know, I remember Chico the man very well, but it's so long ago, you know, that when I saw it, uh, he was only 22 when he died yeah so it's amazing the legacy your dad left
0: at, well, because and because it's, around for it's only yeah it's only a three-year legacy so we can actually like deep dive the whole thing um but he was he was at the uh the famous fame school in new york city and he was doing a play called of mice and men with Keith David. Do you know Keith David? He was like the voice of Spawn. Real cool black dude. Deep voice. He's the voice of the the Navy commercials that you hear. And is a cool character actor. And so uh, my dad doesn't... Keith told me this story. He said, one day we all knew your dad was going to make it. And one day he didn't show up to rehearsals. And everyone in the class was like, he booked something. He's He booked some. We're never going to see him again. And he did. And he booked a big club in Chicago and Richard Pryor discovered him, saw him. And Richard went to a man that I call uncle Ron. His name's Ron de Blasio. Great man. Um, and he said, Hey, you got to check out this kid, Freddie Prince. And so my uncle goes out to, to see him, falls in love with him and books him on, I think it was Milton Berle who they called the King of comedy. And so my dad's last name was Prutzel, which wasn't gonna work in Hollywood. So he changed it to Prince because if Milton was the king, he was gonna be the prince, but he kept the Z out because of the Prutzel in his, in his last name, right? So he goes and he kills. And then he goes on to the Tonight Show, and there's an executive producer in the audience, not in the audience, but backstage named Jimmy Komack, which is an important name to remember in Hollywood history. And James Wolper, which is another very important name to remember in Warner Brothers Hollywood history. And they're both there. And my dad does his five minutes. And Johnny does something, Johnny Carson does something that he's never done before. He invites my father to the couch. Before then, every comic who performed, do their set and gone. And Johnny was so taken by my old man, he brought him over to the couch and did a segment with him where he's interviewing my pops. And- uh, And That was the first
2: time Johnny had done
0: that. Yeah, ever. And wow, so that,
2: that, became, that became the amount of approval it, after
0: that. 100%. Exactly. So the show ends, and James Comeck, Jimmy Comeck, has a show with David Wolper, and they've been looking for a guy to be the lead, but they haven't been able to find him. And the show is Chico and the Man. And they go to him literally at the show and they say, Here, we have this. We want to make this show for you. This is Chico and the Man. So my dad books the job. And a lot of Mexicans initially were pissed that a Puerto Rican was playing this this Chica- American Chicano type role. They didn't understand that white people think we're all the same. Howard Stern, when I would do a show, he'd go, "Yeah, yeah, Mexican guy. Like, I'm not Mexican, but whatever."
3: So he, yeah, that's true, Freddie. They prototype us
0: like to death man. Yeah, it, it, it is what it is. Oh, my geez, dad, stop Jerry. <laughs>
3: you know Freddie gave me a opening there. I mean, I, I, the white <laughs> man. What, what have they ever done? Destroy you know you know, you know how JBL is. I know so, how white people are, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so some people were mad and they protested outside, but the studio believed in my in my dad and their vision. And my dad was starting to have a lot of doubts after the pilot. And this hasn't come out yet the show but he's starting to tour now and he's doing big time clubs. He was horrible with money and Richard's in his head a lot. And during this time, Pam Greer and my dad fell in love and she writes about this in her biography. So I'm not like telling secrets or anything. And Richard worshiped Pam. He was in love with her and this angered Richard to no end. And so Richard started like, getting at my dad like Chico's boy, man, you're going to let you're, you're going to define your legacy by being called boy your whole life. Is that what you want? And this drove my dad crazy. My dad was just 20, 21 years old at this point. And he hated that. It really unnerved him. And so he was going to the clubs and doing his thing. He was spending all his money and, and being dumb with it. And literally it was like having to ask Pam career to borrow money. And even though he was making tons of dough, like he was just an idiot with it. And He starts, you know, getting into the seventies drug scene, which is brutal. And anyone from the seventies will, will tell you that we don't have to get into all that, but uh, he really starts struggling and not liking who he is until Pam kind of like shakes the shit out of him, Right. And has like a come to Jesus moment. And it was at that moment that he got hungry again and, Started to work and he went after, which was a huge job at the time, the Caesar's Palace gig. And at the time, Bill Cosby had it in the 70s for $3 million. And he would do X amount of shows a year. My dad goes straight to their head of entertainment and says, Well, I'll do it for one and I'll do twice the dates. And so they say, Yes. And they kill Cosby's deal. My dad knew he was a piece of shit. And, uh, and no one's they, gonna
2: cry about that now. <laughs> yeah.
0: And they they give it to my dad, and Cosby is ready to like go to war. And so any club that Bill plays, he says, "If I play here, Freddie can't play here." And some of the clubs say yeah, and some of them say no. And my dad's now like aware of this beef that he has with Bill Cosby, and now with Richard Pryor. And so my da- now, I always know when my dad either slept with a woman in this business or was just friends based on the way they say hello to me. All right. So it's always either, Oh, hi, I knew your dad or it's, Oh, hi, I I knew, I know your dad. And you can discern which is which. So I'm doing a pilot with Joanna Kearns, the mom from either grow, I think it was growing pains. Well, yeah, growing pains. And I go into the trailer and it's just her and a makeup artist and me and a makeup artist. This was a show that didn't get picked up. And I don't don't remember how old I was. And uh, I get in the trailer and she looks at me and I say, hi, I'm I'm Freddie. Nice to meet you. And she goes, oh, hi. I I knew your dad. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, you know my dad. And I sit down next to her, and she goes, can I tell you a story? And I'm like, I was waiting for it. And she tells me the most amazing story that anyone ever shared with me about my dad outside of Chavo Classic. Um, But this one takes the cake. So the story starts like this. She says, your dad was on a date with me and Pam Greer. So right away, I'm like, oh, my God, my dad, my dad is the most amazing dude in the world. This is why guys hated him. Like, all right, party on. So that's how the story starts. Your dad took both of them out on a date. Pam and Joanna Kearns. And in the 70s, Joanna Kearns was like fresh off Broadway dancer, like legs for days. Like she was smoking fine. So he's at a restaurant and Joanna says, Richard called the restaurant and asked for your father. And he says, uh, Freddie, I want to I want to bury the hatchet. I'm having a party. Come on through tonight. And so my dad said, "Okay, Richard, I'll see you. there." Hangs up the phone. They pay the check. And he takes uh, both girls and they go to Richard's house. I think Richard was in Brentwood at the time. And uh, so they get to Richard's house. And back then, Playboy would do this thing on the weekends called Playboy Radio. And from 10 PM to midnight, you would, it would literally on the radio, you would hear stand-up comedy. And a lot of comics would go there to try out new material. And my dad had a set that he hated and Richard took the set and they get to his house and there's no cars in the driveway. And was like, Oh, that's where I thought it was a party. And my dad goes, yeah, that's where they go in the house and there's no one in the house except Richard. And he's playing my dad's set that my dad doesn't like. <laughs> and he's and he starts yelling at Pam and cussing Pam out and saying, I won't curse. Up, like Richard does it like you dumb bleepity bee, How are you going to be with this unfunny mother bleeper? And my dad's like, yo, you better turn that off. And he's like, I ain't turning off. And my dad runs over. This is all from Joanna's mouth and punches out. Richard knocks him, knocks him out like <laughs> onto the ground, gr- take, grabs Pam, grabs the tape or the reel. It was reel to reel then grabs the reel, grabs Pam. Forgets Joanna, and leaves. So now it's just Joanna Kearns and Richard Pryor in Richard's house. He's bleeding. She doesn't know where anything is. She finds the kitchen, brings him a towel, hands him the towel. And as Richard's waking up, he's like, "Where are they go? Oh, they left me." Goes, "Can I curse or no?" Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. It, it's better. If it's because it's Richard Pryor. He goes. She goes. I handed him the towel. And he goes, "Bitch, you better get out of my house and get your ass a cab." Like she goes, and he threw me out of his house. That was the story, man. So my dad, my dad lived a crazy life, man. And it led to my mom eventually having to file for divorce because she just couldn't deal with his ass anymore. He was too crazy, too young, lied about his age to be with her, said he was 25. wasn't, he wasn't ready to be a dad and he was on drugs, man. He was addicted to quaaludes. He had enough quaaludes to kill a horse in his system the night that he died, according to doctors. So my mom had no choice, man. She had to file and that sent my father even further into a darker place. And then eventually he used to love this Walter PP seven, the James Bond gun. He loved James Bond. That was like his favorite thing. And he, uh, took a ton of drugs and was playing with a gun and it went off and he lived for a few hours and then died the next day and they ruled it an accidental shooting to the head. A lot of people call it a suicide. Nobody knows for sure. There was no note or anything like that. Um, But yeah, man, so as tragic as that is, I tell the good parts of that story so that people understand how many other people he charmed and loved and gave everything to and those people in turn gave everything back to me and that's why i am where i am and that's why i have what i have because of that tragedy which if you look back is not you know i i didn't die at 22 i i managed to make it i have my own children now they'll have their own children so our our legacy gets to live on and our family gets to live on and it's not a it's not a sad ending it's just a story with some super sad parts and some super funny ones too.
3: You mentioned a story, a uh, funny story except for the one Chavo Classic had. Oh uh, my yeah, gosh. You don't tell us the Chavo Classic. <laughs> yeah, you <one>. can't. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. I, I don't want anyone to get in trouble, but I think we're good. Okay. So <laughs> we, when I worked at the, at WWE, we did an old school night on Monday night raw, where even like the announcers did the old powder blue tuxedo, and I think we even had Finkel out there and, and he announced uh, an entrance. And one of, and like I think Sergeant Slaughter came out and, and had a match that night. And Chavo Classic was there and he was going to drive someone out um, in a lowrider. And so I saw all these like old school guys in the back. And I was like, my childhood's just right there. And this dude comes up to me who I don't recognize because he always had a mask on when he wrestled. And he says, uh, hey, Freddie. I said, oh, hey, man, what's up? He goes, oh, I'm Chavo Classic. I go, oh, snap, what up, man? And he goes, hey, uh, can I tell you a story? I go, of course. And he goes, you're not busy? And I go, which what, what, what's your case? Goes, it's about your dad. And I was like, oh, dang. I go, do I need to sit down? And he goes, no, I just, I don't want to, like, make you mad or anything. I go, brother, I've heard everything. He goes, okay. He goes, it's a quick story. I know you're busy. He goes, but the bet, he said, The best night I ever had in my life was your dad coming to a match I had in Chicago, coming backstage after and bringing me to dinner with him, Frank Sinatra and the Chicago mob. And I never did more cocaine in my entire life than I did that (laughs) night. I literally was like, yo, I haven't. I haven't heard that one. Like, okay, well done, sir. Well, well done. So, yeah, man, he charmed a lot of people. If he loved you, he let you know right away, you know. <laughs> and if he didn't love you, he was okay with you knowing he didn't love you. I'm, a, I'm very similar in that regard. Gallo <laughs> <laughs> Classy's
2: got me thinking, what the hell am I in for? He went there with Frank Sinatra and the mob. Yeah. This is one of those dream nights where you're sitting there going, "You got to be kidding me! This is this yeah, is man. incredible!"
0: This is and awesome. walking into some fancy restaurant in Chicago and eating mobbed up dinners where nobody's paying, like, just cra- the '70s were insane, man, insane. I, I think that night with old
2: school raw, I, I think that's the one. I dressed up, I had the bouffant hair like Vince. I went to his old barber and got all this stuff, you know. And I was saying all the catchphrases just like Vince, like, "Childhood dreams come true." You know, <laughs> And Vince doesn't realize it for a while. And finally, about the second or third match, he comes on and he goes, Michael, you and John, don't find that funny. You're both fired. (laughs) 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 But the
0: best part that's good, though. That's him letting you know, hey, that's pretty damn good.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because I was waiting for him to pop on it and I kept using the catchphrases, and and he apparently was busy doing a million other things. Finally, somebody smartened up to me. going, you know, JBL
0: is you. <laughs> <laughs> Just crapping all over you. I don't find that funny at all. You're both fired. Exactly. You he was wanna... he was real good to me, man. He was re- even when he was pissed at me. He was real good to me.
3: Freddie, how did you end up at WWE? <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> I was ready to be done with the business, and I went to go watch Flair's retirement match. And there was a lady who still works for the company and I've asked her if it's okay. If I say her name, cause I've spoken about her before. And she said, okay. And that was a uh, Kristen Prouty.
3: Yeah, wonderful lady.
0: She, yeah. Yeah, Cause she, they're she was the one who, many times. yeah, she helps all like the celebrities yeah. like get tickets and right. if there's going to be an angle there, she'd always send somebody to make sure they're looked after and taken care of. She really carved out a, a, a an amazing spot for herself in the company and does a great job. And and if you think I did a good job there, then this is one of those reasons. So she came up to me and she's talking to me about wrestling. She was very assertive in this in this whole conversation and what I liked, what I didn't like, what I would do different, all these things. And this isn't even the girl's job. And she says, you have to talk to Stephanie McMahon. And I said, well, what do you mean? <laughs> she goes, you got to talk to Stephanie. They need to hear your ideas. They need to, because you don't just say no. You have like eight the reasons why like eight other ways to do it I was like oh well okay so again that's martial arts you don't focus on the problem you focus on the solutions what's the answer to this problem if you focus on the problem it knocks you out so I was living in New York at the time and or we were bi-coastal but I was in my place in New York and I took the train to Stanford Connecticut And saw the Titan Tower where Vincent Hogan used to lift weights with the neon lights. And I was like, I can't believe I'm here. What am I doing? I haven't even told my agent that I'm retired yet. Like, what is going on? So I walk in and I start talking to Steph about stories and ideas, but then also about how to affect talent and their acting and improve that as well. And when we finish that conversation, she says, oh, my God, you have to talk to my dad. Same thing, proud he said about stephanie i go wait all right and she goes well she goes because you don't just say you don't like something you have like eight reasons why i'm like okay yeah that's the theme right on she goes so you're gonna talk to my dad i go all right so i go and uh i get well before i talk to vince they offer me a job steph offers me the job and i haven't even talked to my wife yet like she doesn't even know i'm meeting with them. so I call my wife on the train on the way home. And I say, uh, hey, she's in L.A. (laughs) And she's like, she's like, what's up? I go, "Um, I'm taking a job with WWE. And she goes, you're going to be a professional wrestler. Are you out of your mind? I said, I said, no, I said, no, I, I look, things happened. And and I think I'm going to be a writer for WWE. I got offered a job from Stephanie McMahon. She goes, what the hell are you talking about? And I start breaking down the story backwards. And she was like, oh, my God, you're such a psycho. And she goes, you already said yes. I go, yeah. She goes, all right. When will I see you? I was like, I'm not sure, but I'll get home. So R-T- I. Just,
3: for sure you say people. <laughs> yeah.
0: So I signed the contract and it's my first day to meet Vince. And they send me in there and it's <laughs> man, Brian. Brian Words hated me so much when I first got there. We ended up being friends and I have love for him. But the first time I ever meet him, Vince calls me into his office, my first day on the job. And Brian is in there with the raw script and a number two pencil in his hand. And Vince reads through the whole script with me and Brian. It's just three of us in the room. This is weird, man. And so he lays down the script and he goes, Brian, I'm going to have to send you back to the drawing board on this and Freddie's going to help you fix it. And I just hear snap. And the number two pencil just snaps. And I'm like, yo, this, he's just going to throw me to the wolves and see if I come out like Mowgli from the jungle book, or if I'm just a meal. Right. So I'm walking back with Brian to the writer's office with a guy who hates me and I'm having to walk next to him now. And the first thing I say is, dude, I'm so sorry. And he goes, this is your fault. And I go, Oh no. <laughs> like what, what is this job? So I walk in and Brian's like, well, we're going to rewrite the whole script. Looks right at me. And I'm looking back at him like, dude, I'll write it if it's that big friggin' deal. And so everybody starts to go in and and rewrite the show and rewrite their segments. And, and that was the mood in the room for like the first four weeks. I felt like a man without a country on a night. Like DJ was throwing, the only- Were
3: they one. throwing your shit all the time too? Oh All my right, God. all right, Hollywood, how do you
0: fix this? Yeah. D, DJ was the only one that was like, hey, don't worry about that crap, focus on this, right? And And Freebird was just like, make my life easier, not more difficult. <laughs> so he was good to me because I was there to make his life easier. But everyone else was real cold and I had to earn it, man. And it wasn't until the dialogue I was writing or the notes I was giving talent started getting momentum and they started, you know, talking amongst themselves and word of mouth got around, which is always the best business. And that's when people started softening up and being like, hey, Freddie, will you help me with this promo? And I'm like, man, you hated me two weeks ago. Let's go. (laughs) <laughs> but it was all good, man. I got love for everybody. So yeah, when, all... when you were
3: describing the walkout from Vince's office with Brian, John and I were cracking up because we've been in that same position with Brian and seen that same reaction many times.
0: That poor man, I would watch him in production meetings every week. I'm just like the amount of wood and timber that has been lost due to number two pencils because of this one individual. It's not the logging industry. That's the problem. It's Brian.
2: <laughs> that's right. Brian and I had met season tickets a couple of years. I always told him they were just above the uh, glide path into LaGuardia. They were so far back that we I
0: remember he used to trash all his teams. He liked Syracuse too, the college, and he that's used to
2: right, crap all over. Them. I said our seats were so high up, Mr. Met looked like a normal sized baseball. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and his teams were easy to, to crash on too, by the way. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. But he was a good dude, man.
0: Like once I earned his trust and, and a little bit of his respect, he and I were, were really good together and he looked out for me quite quite yeah, a few Brad, times.
2: Brian's a uh, he's a really good dude, but he's also a really creative dude. I mean he he did a great job. I respect a, I've always the respected Block Brock him.
0: Yeah, man, his dialogues—that guy could talk trash, dude. It's always it's always the Brian Gewertzes that talk the best smack, man. It's always those guys. They look like oh, he's a nice guy, and then you kind of trash him a little, and then they just cut you with some like death quote where you're like, oh my god, man, I, I thought
2: we were joking around. That's hurtful. So Brian got me one time. He he knew he knew I didn't like one person. Okay, so and I won't uh-huh. say who it is because people know who it is. But so but we're I, I always trash our Mets tickets. And they were actually really good seats. But I would always say, you know, the game ended like an hour before we saw it because we were so far back. <laughs> and so I'd take a satellite picture of Shea Stadium and I say, this is a picture from me and me and Brian's seats. And so that's Brian, good. Like, that's really good. Brian invites me to his, uh, his, birth, his birthday party and sits me by the one person I don't like. And I, yes, sir. I'm sitting there and I thought, well played. Yes, sir. sir. He's like Michael (laughs) Corleone, man. That's exactly what I do to myself.
0: (laughs) 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 Yeah, he makes godfather moves for sure. But I'm telling you, like, for what the madness of those production meetings were and the length of time he was able to endure it. He should be in more Hall of Fames than Bruce. That's for damn sure. That there should be a martial arts hall of fame just for defense, which is what that dude had to do. Let's keep his guard up for a decade in that room. <laughs> you know, I don't know
2: how what you thought we thought, but you know, we we actually thought it was pretty cool that a guy that was that
0: hot in Hollywood
2: wanted to come be part of our business.
0: It was it depended on the person's age, the person's experience, their security, everything. There were some people who really made me earn it. Like, I remember when I, when I started the acting class thing, I mean, MVP hated me. He's held both my babies, okay? Like, we ended up being best friends. Like, get, we have jujitsu conversations every week. Like, so I, I don't have, I'm not on bad terms with anybody there. At least I don't think I am. But, you know, the young people that didn't know themselves yet all loved me. The people who had direction were very hesitant. Like Miz, was one where he was going to make me earn it. We used to do this this acting exercise in class called repetition, which I hated doing, but I learned later why it was important. Which is where we get locked into one line, and that's what we all we can say. So if I say, uh, "John, that's a cool sculpture behind you," all you can say is that. Oh, that's a cool sculpture behind me. Yeah, that's a cool sculpture behind you. That's cool, and. The point of the exercise is to show you how many different ways you can execute a line correctly, so long as you commit to it. And it also, you feel like an idiot in front of all your peers. And if you can get over that, you're a lot less likely to fail in front of a live audience. So I'm presenting the philosophy, a more long-winded version to the, to the class, to the wrestlers. And I say, does anyone want to volunteer? I'll do it with you. Or do you want me to pick somebody? and Miz puts his hand up right away and stands up like a student in class right and he goes I'll go and I'm like oh dude this guy and he was just starting to do the dirt sheet stuff with Morrison where they were doing their like their gimmicks in in ECW and stuff like that so he was feeling himself because they were getting momentum and I go all right so I'll throw you a line you want me to start he goes no 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 I'll start and I go oh And now my eyes get big because I'm like, I'm going to eat this guy up. He's never done this before. And I've done this a lot, but respect. So he starts off and hits me with, and I'm going to change the F word to hell. Okay. He starts off like this. What the hell are you going to teach me about acting? And my eyes just I'm like a wolf sitting around I'm like, what the hell am I going to teach you about acting? And he goes back. What the hell are you? And we go back and forth. And in acting class, when it's two guys, they always get closer and closer like they're going to fight. And if it's a guy and a girl, they always get closer and closer like they're going to kiss. And if it's two girls, they always respect each other's boundaries. But that's just how life works in general. So Ms. takes a step forward. I take a step forward. He goes to take another step forward, but he changes the line. And the whole class is like, "Ah, you lost, you changed And so that kind of breaks the tension. And he looks at me and I'm like, dang, dude, like he was really testing me. Years later, I find out I'm having a personal conversation with him. He had no reason to lie to me. He says, no, dude, I really liked you. I just wanted everyone else to believe in the philosophies that you were bringing. That's why I put that whole thing that you did over. That's why I changed the line so that they would see. And I literally was like, Dude, that's like, and that's how he wrestles too. He outsells every like I remember a match with him and Lawler where they I thought Lawler was gonna win the thing halfway up the damn ladder. So I'm sitting there, and this is now him, Miz, the father of two. You know, he's he's had all his success, and it was this was when we had the conversation. I remember sitting there, like, wow, and that's when the class took off. Like everybody was eager and excited after that. It just took one. And then there were times where it was tough. Like Cena came in one time uninvited. This is the best, dude. I love this so much. Cause I respect seeing it Ever, A lot of people gave him crap during the PG era, but there were other dudes that could have held that and he volunteered for it and did it with pride and honor. And I've always respected that because that's no easy task, man. No. So he, he comes in and in the middle of two, I, I think it was Cardona and, and someone, it might've been who it might've been Cardona and Wyndham, I think is who it was. Or no, it was uh, no, it was it was Hawkins and Ryder. Yeah, it was Hawkins and Ryder. So Myers and Cardo. So they're both sitting there doing a scene from Bad Boys, the Martin Lawrence Will Smith movie. And John comes right in, opens a folding chair, puts it between them, and just sits down between them and, <laughs> and <laughs> stares right at me. And I'm like, what is going on right now? And nobody says anything, including John. So now I have to make a choice. I'm like, all right, am I going to fight the Incredible Hulk? <laughs> like what? <laughs> like what is Chuck Norris? Is, or not like this guy's built like a a damn building they call him edificio in puerto rico so i go john can you talk to me outside for a second and he kind of cocks his head and stands up and i stand up and we go outside and i close the door and i go dude what the hell is that and he goes well i just think that he goes and these are his words he goes maybe i'm a neanderthal but you can either act or you can't that's it and i go well i think you're right i said But it's my job to try to find the ones who can. And I had to stick up for myself a little bit here. I said, you don't need my help. You can already act. I said, but you're not in here helping them out with that stuff. You help them out when they have a match with you. I said, so let me do my job, man. Please don't F with me while I'm doing this. Seriously, man, don't. And he goes, all right. He goes, I'm just a caveman. I go, you're not. I go, it's just you can do this and you don't want me here. I get that. He called me Ashton Kusher for for like eight months while I was working there. So the first time. So uh, so I go back into the, into the little room that they put us in, the broom closet where we're doing this. And every, they're all young wrestlers in there and they're all like, oh, I thought you guys were going to throw down. I'm like, are you out of your freaking mind? I'm going to get a fist fight with John Cena. Stupid. So we all get back into it and we start doing our scenes again. And then I'm on the plane with Vince going back to, to the airport that night and he's just chuckling, Right. And the planes just landed. I'm going to get off. He goes, oh, wait, wait here a second. Wait. Everybody gets off the plane, and he goes, uh, "I heard you had a little uh, problem with John there." And I go, "What?" And he, he says, yeah, I heard yeah, you had a little confrontation with John. I go, I didn't have a confrontation with anybody. I say, And I told him the story of how, and he's laughing at me the whole time. And I'm like, do you even care? Like, I was like, is there, he goes, listen, nobody can fire you but me. So don't worry about it. You did good. And I was like, all right, great. And then I got in. I think Shane was with us that night and he had this old muscle car and drove us home because we lived in the same apartment building and was going like 120 miles an hour down the road with Gewurz in the backseat looking like Bambi when he sees his mom get killed and me like <laughs> banging the dash like the guy riding shotgun at Ferris Bueller like, yeah,
3: go, go, go.
0: And we made it home in like eight minutes from White Plains.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Freddie, you got to have a Michael P.S. A story that you could share with us? Oh, God. Yeah, but I've been
0: in therapy for the last 13 years trying to forget (laughs) him. (laughs) Michael, my favorite story for Michael was the Jeff Hardy run for the title. Because he was so fond of both those boys and had so much love for them. I believe he was the one who brought him in. And he spoke about Jeff with so much understanding and love for the problems that Jeff was going through. And Michael related to a lot of those problems. And Michael had fallen prey to a lot of the same types of punishments and consequences that, that Jeff was dealing with and going through. And he saw this window where Jeff had some good steam and I pitched it. And he said, I want to make Jeff champion, right ideas. And I came up with this idea where instead of running away from what Jeff was going through at the time, we lean into it. And I took my father as an example. I've managed to make my father a sympathetic character for the last 25 years, even though he made some terrible decisions in his life. If I can do that for for him, I can do that for this guy too. And so instead of hiding from it, like not saying the name Voldemort, we embraced it. And I called it the gray area, this place where life's not black and white. People medicate. They just don't always take the right medication because they're addicted to something else or they they weren't raised with that philosophy in mind or the lifestyle they live doesn't allow them that. And I did it in a very artistic way. And I mean that not like, I was so artistic. Jeff is an artist. He's a painter, he's a singer, he's a songwriter. So I tried to write the generic version of what I just told you in a way that Jeff would speak or at least the way we would think he would speak. The first poem I wrote him was horrible. And then once I had a conversation with him and got his his vocabulary down, then then we got good, because the first one I wrote, if I was going to say it as I had never had a conversation with Jeff, this was just my assignment that I was given. But once I got to know him, I was able to really kind of start throwing much more of him into all those. And I remember we were getting right up to the point where if they kept Jeff untouched, he was going to win. But if he lost anything on the way, he for sure, they were going to pull it out from under us. And there was a production meeting where not everyone agreed. And and in hindsight, rightfully so. They didn't feel he was going to be responsible enough at that point to carry the the world championship, at least from the perspective of of certain individuals in in the room. And and others said, yo, we got to roll with this. Give him a chance. And I pitched my brains out for this. I mean, creatively. Was in there 25, 30 minutes just fighting for this, fighting for this. And Michael's under the table next to me, kicking my leg like, stop it, damn it, stop. They're going to hate it. And I'm going and going. And if I hit that brick wall, I brought up his merchandise sales. And I said, in the last six months, he's a top seller in the entire company, more than the people who are disagreeing with him, him being champion in this room right now. And it got super quiet. And I was like, oh, man, I messed up. I messed up. And I just feel Michael's hand on my wrist squeeze. And I was like, oh, no. And he's got a grip. He's got your wrestler Briscoe grip. Put it right on my wrist. I was like, oh, man. And I sat down. And Vince is like real quiet. And he looks over at Kevin. And Kevin didn't do nothing in front of anybody or in front of everybody, I should say. And then finally, Vince goes, nobody touches Jeff till Armageddon. And I jumped back like someone shot me because I knew I knew we I knew that we got it over. Right. And Michael still had my wrist. So I jumped back and I got pulled back forward and he goes, everybody, everybody get out of here except the people that disagreed. And he was going to tell them why he was going with us, which I never found out why. And we go outside the room and Freebird goes, Freddie, don't celebrate. It's not over yet. It's like it's like I'm a fighter and he's like my coach, and I'm sitting in the corner, we're right outside the production room door. And I'm like, I'm telling you, Michael, I think it's gonna happen, and I think we're all good. And DJ's like, it's gonna happen, we're good. And Freebird's like, DJ, shut the bleep up. <laughs> and I'm laughing. And he goes, Fred, stop. They're gonna come out this room. They're gonna be fired up and pissed off if you're right. And if they see you jumping up and down, it'd be the last damn thing you do. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I'll sit down, I'll chill. And then the door opens and one by one, the people who disagreed come out and they didn't even look at me. Right. And so I was like, we got it. And <laughs> they may be mad at me, but Jeff's going to be champion, and, and I really believed in that story. And I believed in making him champion at the time. And I think there's a good argument to say, hey, maybe he wasn't the most responsible guy based on what happened just a few months later and him not even being in the company a couple months after that. So I for sure respect the argument that that uh, it wasn't his time but if there was ever a time my argument was this was going to be it because he had never been more believed or or hoped in by the outcasts that he represented and that's what those types of actors do they have a cult following and in some cases it's it's because you're so damn different and you realize oh there's a lot of people out there that are not cool and feel real outcasts and just don't fit in with society and don't agree with the norms and All those people love Jeff Hardy and they all bought those weird Spider Man armband things in droves. And and that was in in great part, they were a great part in him becoming champion.
3: Is that your is that your greatest moment you feel with WWE?
0: Not always, because I look back at the arguments made against it, and a lot of a lot of those arguments make more sense to me now than they did. I remember those arguments. Yeah, you were there. (laughs) So, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. Cause again, I I think a little bit of them were right. I kind of think the greatest work I did was the second time I came to the company where I really just worked on the fundamentals of acting and understanding a monologue and a promo. And then watching a lot of those wrestlers today cut promos where I'm just like, dude i didn't have anything to do with that and that was really good so that i like knowing most that i I at least helped establish some good habits um, and some like just a good sort of path that they could start any promo on and still find a way to get to the end of it and it was just a lot of what vince would tell us with with matches was work backwards and so i really tried to approach promos like that was what's the go home line and let's work backwards
1: Who's going to take care of your family if something happens to you? What would they do without your income? If you don't have a plan, you need to go to GoliathLife.com. Get a quick quote for more than 20 carriers. You don't even have to leave the house. If you need a medical exam, they'll send somebody to your house or office. You're in total control. You pick the rates, you pick the payments, you pick the terms. You're in total control, but it gives you and your family peace of mind. What if something happens to your income? Hurry to GoliathLife.com.
3: You said I uh, said something a couple of times in in in, in your 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 answer and your your story about Jeff that a lot of guys from the outside, Freddie, really failed to to do, and it's easy to come in and write your promos, but you got to get inside the guy's head. You said you took the time to get inside Jeff's head. And as a as a performer, as you know, being a performer, that's the most important thing is have somebody understand what how you say things and and how you you respond to.
0: I couldn't agree more. Um, Every director who's gotten a great performance out of me invested the time to earn my trust so that I would take chances. Um, I will say this in my defense, the first promo I wrote for him, the only reason I didn't work with him first was because there just wasn't enough time. And I think some of the writers just don't get enough time. Now I would cheat things because even if my stuff wasn't approved, I would send it to talent group just so they had, it. I said, look, things are going to change, but this is the base thing. And if it all falls apart, you can always fall back on this. And if Vince gets mad at you, I'll bite that bullet. Cause he told me he's the only one that can fire me. So I felt like I had a little latitude with that. And I had to do that a couple of times where they just couldn't wrap their heads around what the rewrite was as well as they could the original. So I would just literally, I mean, one time with Jeff, I would write it on cue cards and literally move the, this is, yo, this was the moment where I was like, Stephanie McMahon was like my boss. Like I would have, and we had disagreements too, but in this moment I was like, wow, like I would follow this chick into battle anywhere. We were doing the promo for the championship match for Jeff. And the power went out. And I'm not an electrician. I can't hardly change a light bulb. I could barely access this site to do this podcast, okay? So I'm literally sitting there like, we're screwed. And I'm sitting down. I'm not actively looking for the solution. I'm literally focused. I, what I tell you guys not to do, uh, I'm focused on the problem. We're like, there's no power. We can't shoot. What the hell? So the guy's like, we can do this battery pack. I'm like, great. There's no light. I'm only problem oriented blam the door to this suite that we're in in the arena flies open it's stephanie mcmahon we're getting this shot we're doing this i'm like yo i'm standing up she goes find me a light she's like in the gaffer's face he goes i got a, a a laser like green pen light. give me that i'm like uh i go look there's a scotch glass here we can shine it through she goes give me that scotch glass and she's like ripping stuff out of my hands like full on she's full vince mcmahon right like and she's shining the light through the glass and it's on And it's on Hardy's face and he's looking tripped out. And I grab the other guys, uh, the, the cameraman, what was his name? The Mexican dude does all the Vegas fights. Luis. Uh, Luis. Thank you so much. Yeah. So he gives me his flashlight so I can shine it on the cue cards and Luis is holding the camera and I'm literally just moving the cue cards around the camera with a flashlight so that Jeff's looking tormented and tortured while, while he says this promo that we have no power for him to even be able to read and learn it, which is why we had to do it on the cue card. And Stephanie on this day was just not there's just certain days where you see a fighter get in the ring and you're just like, yeah, they're not losing. (laughs) They're not losing, period. It doesn't matter who gets in there. And that was her. And when it was over, I had this like adrenaline dump. You guys know what that feels like, where you get like the shakes almost. And I was like, holy, uh, holy crap. And she goes, we're, she goes, we got it. We did good. I go, yeah, we did good. That was sick. Like, it was like a rush, man. Cause we had to get it. We had no time. And she just powered through. So I don't know. I got lost on that. Well, we were talking about Jeff, but yeah, it, that was the best promo. Cause that was when I really knew him the most. And like I said, we had really leaned into all the, the issues that he was going through and dealing with.
2: It's amazing. You know, a young kid sometimes will ask you know, advice. And I'm hesitant if the kid is like Jeff Hardy, like no one's like Jeff Hardy. But to get, I, if Jeff Hardy asked me for advice, I would tell him, go with your heart, because I have no idea what to give, how to give Jeff Hardy advice. I can't explain Jeff Hardy. I can't yeah. explain how he, but he, the, ever since the day he came into WWE, he got over like a million freaking dollars. And if you tried to draw that up on a, on a drawing board, no way, do all those dances and stuff, you, you it's impossible. You'd go, that, that'll never work. And Jeff does anything and it works. That's yeah. why, you know, sometimes when a young person asks to advice, buy too many people, there's always too much advice going to young people, you know? Sometimes you just say, you know what? You got to find your own way and go with what you think's right. And that, that's Jeff Hardy.
0: You know, when I was in my 20s, I was big on giving advice. I thought I knew every damn thing. So if someone asked, I gave it. And the older I got, the more I realized my advice could get that poor bastard killed or he may never work again if he does what i do so i stopped and i really believe in what you said is follow your heart man trust what got you here trust why you're here that's the that's the path you're meant to be on anything that takes you off that path is wrong anything that keeps you on it is right so just do what you do because i'm telling when i was in my 20s and hot stuff and on the cover of people magazine freddie what do you think about let me tell you what i think (laughs) about something that i know nothing about i'll tell you all day but as I got older, I I know three things, man, and that's about it.
2: Well, I gotta tell you how the nickname came about because you talk about nicknames. We always we always gave nicknames, you know. Yes. And, oh my God, dude! And it's always that. the worst nickname ever. <laughs> Absolutely, of course it is. So <laughs> when when you came in, they go Freddie Prince Jr. coming in, and I remember I think I'm thinking Chico and the Man. I'm going Freddie Prince's son, and and I I, I knew about your movies, but I'm a Scooby Doo fan, and I go Scooby Doo's coming
0: in. That's awesome. So that literally (laughs) was my name, and you're you're see the thing with John and Jerry, you know this. You say every insult with such a big smile, and there's so (laughs) much like joy and love because you want them to be in on the joke too. It's not like you're just trying to crack. You want them to feel the way you're feeling, so it makes it impossible to get mad at you, even if you call me Scooby. But anyone else who did like straight, I'd be like, hey man. No. Nah. And they'd be like, oh, all right. But with, I'm just like, man, I guess I'm Scooby till the day I freaking die and I'm all good with it. But
3: you know. all, right, all right, Freddie, I got to ask you this. Uh, what My partner known, you know, uh, unrightfully so as a bully and you're coming in your Hollywood and uh, did, did I know you had some brushes with John. Were any of those brushes where you could go to HR and say, hey, this guy's a bully. I, I can't work with him. Uh, come on, tell the truth. We're all, mean, all about the truth there. In today's society. Because <laughs> okay, I, I could kinda... tell you something myself. as, as, well, as yeah. you <laughs> can't... I, I could have reported Jerry for the abuse he gave me. I <laughs> well, mean, that was, that was the wrong kind of abuse. I,
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look, it is a crazy. I've said this before. It is the craziest business That I've ever been in and I've worked with some crazy people, but I love the wrestling business more than I love Hollywood because they're as nuts as it is and as wild as it is people let you know if they don't like you a lot quicker in the wrestling business than in Hollywood. In Hollywood, they're like, hey, let me put a fishing hook in this guy and I'll ride it all the way and I'll never say I hate him, even though I want him to rot in hell, you know? But in the wrestling business, they'll be like, hey, man, don't talk to me. Like MVP was straight up. He was doing a promo with Chris and it didn't work. I knew it didn't work. And I'm like laying in the cut, right? Like often like a booth, like listening to it. My work was done and I was hungry. You know, I wanted to help. And I already knew what the fix was. I, I I'd already like cut the whole thing in my head. And so finally, it's like 10 minutes and I, I can't wait anymore that people listen to me like 10 minutes isn't that long. For me, it was an eternity because I felt like I knew the answer. And so I, I storm over there and MVP stands up before I get there. So I, right away, I'm like, oh, this is bad. So he goes, what? And I've had him on my podcast. We've talked about this. And uh, I said, hey, man, I don't mean any disrespect. But I think I got one line that a re- I had the whole thing rewritten, but I go, I think I got one line at the end that will really help send this home. And I just wanted to pitch it. And he said, okay, what is it? And so I, I hit him with, I think it was like, something like when I break my foot off in your jaw, you will know the, the definition of the word respect or something like that. Right. And he's looking at me like, I can't read it. Right. MVP is a cagey cat. Like if, if he's not cool with you, he doesn't let you in too much on what he's thinking and feeling. And he's looking at me and I'm like, he either hates me or he loves it. And he looks at DJ and he goes, write that down. And so then I come in, he sits down and I go, can I sit? And he goes, yeah. And I sat down and I go, all right, what about this? And I break down like the whole promo, how I see it. And DJ is like, yeah, what about this? And Hassan, our uh, MVP, is like, "Oh yeah!" And then I could cut that, and we could put this here, and all of a sudden we have this promo. And he goes out there, and it just crushes. Like it just crushes because he owned it, you know. Because it was words that should have that should have been flowing from his from his mouth this whole time, but he felt handcuffed. Like Al Pacino's famous for saying, "The script's too tight. It's too tight. I feel handcuffed. It's too tight. I need to loosen it up." And so that's what we had to do with that. And it just flowed. And I remember him coming back and being like, yeah, you're all right. You're all right. And then he and I were super cool after that, man. Super cool. But there were brush ins with John. I mean, and I gave it back to him a couple of times. I had a promo. I was sitting next to Vince that went real well in the ring. And this is so petty. I shouldn't have done this, but John was going out next and my guy killed it and he's coming in and John goes, uh, Hey Freddie, his first time he didn't call me Ashton. Hey Freddie, that was he goes that was good promo, and I didn't even look at him. I go yeah right, and I just stayed locked on the on the monitor, and then he went when all his music hit and he went out. I was like man, I should have just said thanks, but I didn't want to give it to him. <laughs> I didn't want to give it to him, so I didn't.
2: Well, Freddie, I found out what a stand up guy you were because as Mister Briscoe, you know, I I never passed the heat. I never if I've done something I. I take the blame. I, I, I know I, the okay. story
0: you're about to tell, and I this is when I fell in love with you, by the way.
2: <laughs> so, uh, well, you tell the story because uh, I'd done that before, and believe me, I'd been thrown under the bus, which I didn't mind because I it was me that did it. But uh, I was I didn't know at the time that you had taken the bullet for me. I found well, out later that you had done it. I thought
0: that was pretty, so, pretty cool. Yeah, so, you know, I've said this before, but, like, my job – I felt very safe in, in my position based off things that Vincent had said to me. And if I'm going to get fired, all right, you know, that would be embarrassing, but worse things have happened. So I remember he rewrote this promo that, that we had. And uh, he was like, you tell him to say it exactly like this, every damn word. And so I'm like, all right. And you and I spoke about it. And I said, you want to work on it? And you're like, no, Freddie, I got it. I got it. And I don't want to bother you. I always felt wrong even being in the locker room, right? It just didn't feel right. So it's like jujitsu. Like you don't get on the mats if you're not training. Like it, otherwise it's kind of disrespectful. So I got out of there to leave you to it. And the rewrite was not good. It, it just, it, it didn't work. And, and so you didn't do it. And you did the original one because it was much better. And Vince is just going off. And he's like yelling at Kevin and, and. And Kermit and whoever else, or Kerwin is that his name? Kerwin. Oh. Um, just everybody. And me, I'm sitting next to him and he's elbowing me in the side. There's your HR story, Jerry. <laughs> and, and he's built like Robocop. So you feel it when he gets you, you know? And he's like, I told you, damn it. And I said, look, I know what you said, but that promo, man, I told you when you rewrote it, I don't think it's good. And I told him to go with the one that was originally written. I'm sorry if you're pissed, you throw me out. Get out of here. Okay, he's throwing me out. So I walk out of Gorilla and I heard from Freebird that when you came back, Vince was pissed and you took all the heat. So we both took the heat That's right. off each other. And and Vince, on, that was another time on the plane and I felt like Vince kind of set me up for that to see if I would throw you under the bus or not as how I felt in hindsight because he was very sort of like pleased not with me but with himself when he talked about it on the plane that night so I'm like was this something you just set that up did you write it on write it badly on purpose like I uh, your your brain just fantasizes about what Vince's brain fantasizes about and so that I always thought maybe that was like a test that he was giving me I didn't know
2: because when I came through, he, he pulled me over, and he goes, what happened? He goes, I, I wrote that other promo. I said, I know. I said, I made the call on the fly, 100% my call. And I said, I thought what I said worked better. And I said, if it didn't work, I said, 100% me, I'm, I'm to blame, because I'm the one that made the call on the fly. Yeah. And, and, and as soon as I said that, he was he was perfectly fine. He goes, okay. <laughs> he goes, all right, cool. Put his headset up, sat back down. You no, know, you know, He never – I've done that that before, and sometimes it works, sometimes it didn't. He never got mad at me when I was trying stuff. You know, he never got mad at commentary. You know, it was always – because he knew I was just trying to get the character over. He'll allow people
0: big swings, man, and big swings means sometimes you're going to miss that ball by a lot. And he – like I said, I've said this before, but he was always real good to me even when he was pissed. Even when he was pissed, he you know, that was garbage. That didn't work. That was this – that was that. And at the end of it, it would still be. But you got to keep thinking like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was, you know, letting me know that what happened wasn't executed the way it was pitched. But we're in the right ballpark. So you just got to make it better. And I I, I respect tough love, man. I'm, oh, you, we talked about all the the idiots that raised me. Those are all psychopaths. You know what I mean? So I I, I respect that and I, I respond to it. Hey, Freddie, what
2: what is the answer when you talk about, like, acting classes like you had? Because we always said an old old saying in the old wrestling business is we're not Pacino. And so characters that work generally are characters that are based off you. Like Stone Cold is very much Stone Cold. Undertaker is the Undertaker. You know, those characters work because you're not playing something. And people say, well, when it's real, it's better, which I don't agree with. When it appears real, it's better. Yeah, it doesn't have to be real. It just has to, it could be real and, and look fake. Gary Oldman yeah. wasn't Winston Churchill, but it still looked real. That's right. And so the, the question is, what is the answer going forward? Is it something like acting classes? For guys, once they get in, sometimes sometimes an acting class can have a backfire. It's like a, a guy who takes one course in karate, he gets, goes out and gets beat up because he thinks he's a, he thinks he's a judo expert now, you know? Yeah,
0: so, I, look, I agree with what John Cena said in this regard. You can either act or you can't, all right? There's no getting around that, but if you can, you can get better or worse at it depending how hard you work at it depending on who's challenging you. Are people challenging your choices and making you think creatively to do something different than what you've done before? And in order to do that, you have to trust the person that's challenging you. Otherwise, it's just someone crapping on you. I've always said this, like social media is a good example of this. People get mad when you don't listen to their opinion. And it's like, I don't take advice from people or criticism from people I don't seek out advice from. Like, I don't know you. You're a stranger. So, anything you say, no matter how good it is, I'm not going to receive the way you hope I do. You have to earn a trust with me if you want to make some creative, effective change within me. So, it's like, you know, I, I'm on a plan to start a small little like indie federation out here on the West Coast. And a lot of people are like, "Oh, don't do this, don't do that," and I'm like, "Well, I'm going to just do my vision." And I appreciate <laughs> all the the other ideas out there. And I know sometimes someone presses a heart button and it makes you think you're right, but it, then it's no longer my vision. Then I'm selling out to you and you and you instead of following my vision. And I think that's the guys like Cena, the guys like you know Rocky. There's a lot of people on the roster right now that connect. I mean.
2: Well, Randy Orton, you know, I always thought Randy was Randy was so good before. Orton
0: never wanted to be challenged, though. But Orton that, never once he found something good. Randy didn't want to be challenged, and it wasn't until he got older and wiser that he was like, "No, I want to spread this out. I want to stretch my wings a little bit." And sometimes age comes confidence, and confidence is required to effect change. And also, Randy, after he did those movies, you could tell he got better. You he got. Yeah, better he did that movie with too. Seth too. With it Seth Macaulay, dreams. yeah.
2: Yeah, a very subtle thing, so, you know, his, his facial
0: expressions, his small stuff, you know, it just, just that little bit there that changed him. All those little things, we would talk about that in class because there's so many moments in backstage arenas where you're leaving the camera on a talent that's been left there and it's just a frozen moment. And I hate the frozen moment, right? It's like if, it, it's, if, if it looks paused, cut. So my thing was always like, yo, if this person just left you holding the bag, your whole body needs to just deflate. I need to see that this person broke your heart. Like a I literally would be like a balloon losing air. Like I need to see your, your shoulders slot. And in order to do that, you have to make sure your posture is strong early in that promo. I would talk about those things. You know, if you tell a joke and, and they laugh, it's one thing, right? If you're on a date, you tell a joke, they laugh, it's one thing. If you tell a joke, they laugh and they put their hand on yours. That's another thing. That's a that's a way to other thing. So, you know what I mean? Like, all those little body control and 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 body language types things were a big thing that I did the second time I was there as far as, like, looking down your nose at somebody is, is a very, like, regal, heelish thing. Looking up through your eyebrows is a much more humble, you know, blue-collar way of, of approaching somebody. So all those little, like, things that I learned from actors way better than me, like Brian Dennehy, Peter Falk, all these old-school cats that would just... Give me little gems every once in a while. They'd see in a scene a missed opportunity. And they'd be like, Freddie, come here for a sec. Let's let all that air out of your body. You forgot to breathe, bro. And I'm like, what? It's like, you didn't breathe because you're breathing right now. Breathe when you act. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So I would see wrestlers literally hold their breath when they weren't talking and entering promos. I'm like, always breathe. Think about your laundry. Think about anything. The camera registers thought." It doesn't know what you're thinking. It just knows when you're not thinking. <laughs> so right. I was like, I was like, Think about your laundry. Think about anything with, while they're talking and just know where you need to go. If you're having a hard time listening and answering and acting, there's tricks. Not every actor that's been a huge movie star has been a great actor. You know, they use tricks. Audrey <laughs> Hepburn wasn't the greatest actress of her generation. If you rewatch her movies, you'll be like, well, some of those moments aren't that good. You'd be like, yo, my man Hannibal from the A-teams acting circles around this girl in Breakfast at Tiffany's.
2: The the independent promotion that you want to start up, is it because you see a void uh, in the wrestling minutes or is it just because of a passion that you have for
0: the wrestling minutes or both? My philosophy is this. There's over 200 dramas on television. There's over 150 comedies on television. There's over 400 reality TV shows on television. And there's three wrestling (laughs) shows. So, so there's tons more room, but my plan is a little different. I don't, I'm not looking for a TV deal at first. I want to have a couple of years where we're still filming everything, but I need time to fail. And so I want to have, I'm already real estate shopping. I'm already looking to own a place where I can have a venue where it's not too big, where it's not too small, where I, I bought a lighting kit from the Fox boxing, uh, uh, crew they were replacing their old one and it was like a $38,000 rig and I got it for six grand I don't know if I'm supposed to say that if they were allowed to sell it but it's in storage so like I've already got a lot of things that I want for it I'm about a year and a half away from being fully ready to to go but I want to take my time with it and then once we're ready to go I want to have a fully sag show and that year and a half gives me a time for all my wrestlers in my roster to get vouchered so that when we do go, it can be a SAG show. My wrestler's going to have insurance, retirement, and everything that comes with the Screen Actors Guild. I assure you it's not all good. There's a lot of BS with our union as well. But it's something that I've wanted to do for a long time. It's been a goal of mine for a long time. I don't know how far down the goal line I'll get, but I'm going as far as I can go. And if I fail, well, I, don't, I don't care, man. I'm, I'm still going all the way. But as far as getting it up and running, that's a no-brainer. I already have a plan for that. It's just if I, I just want to make sure that in the year and a half, I'm as prepared as possible to go to TV with something that's never been done before, because it's going to be hard. No one's been able to pull that off. And I understand why. But I think I got some sneaky ways doing seasons, having a limited roster, things like that the the star wars business model like on the mandalorian where they don't pay anyone but like the base scale rate like i can do that with some of my other guys and then save the bigger checks for for other people but i'm working hard on it man my i have a friend who literally has run the cw for the last 20 years and they have a really good business model in place it's how they maintain all those dc shows for so long and uh i ask a lot of questions to to a lot of people and i've been asking a lot of wrestlers as well and a lot people who have built things, you know, I spoke to Cody um, and I've spoken to Cody multiple times. So it's, it's a lot to learn, but I feel like I'm going slow and steady and I'm learning it the right way.
2: Well, if you need anybody to sell the business to Vince McMahon, uh, you know, Gerald Briscoe famously <laughs> did that in Georgia. And
3: uh... <laughs> I know the cue. <laughs> you got the phone Brisco, what for? was it? What was it Vince said to you? Uh, you finally ended and finally got back Manhattan.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and Vince has been saying that ever since
0: <laughs> No, that's good Well, there's another HR right there <laughs> oh, shit.
2: So, Freddie, but- do, you, do you ever regret I mean, you, you were One of, if not the hottest guy in Hollywood, you're doing all these movies and then you back off significantly. You're still out there. You know, it's not like you just completely retired and jumped off the, you know, planet and moved. to. I did for a while,
0: but I did come back in the, in the last year because I want to, I want to (laughs) finance my wrestling. league. (laughs) 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 But, but yeah, man, regrets as far as walking away from the business. Walking away. Yeah. You you had stupid
2: money. You're the hottest name there. You could have done all kinds of movies. Just, i can't certainly don't if you want to
0: i haven't had regrets in a very long time when i was a young man i had them constantly um but i'll be honest with you i mean when i took my job with wwe i had them pay me in stock so wrestling's been better to me than hollywood has <laughs> so you know what i mean like my my bread is i know where it's buttered that's you know that's one of the reasons why I'm wanting to do this. And we were Let's talking see, about stock, Hawaii stock,
3: stock back then was like $27. I see brother. I, I got it. I got it. Something like that. Brother, so, I had it at $10
0: yeah. when they gave it to me. I, I had it at nine. I hate, I hate <laughs> <that
3: too.
0: laughs> you were there a bit longer than me. You deserve it. But, uh, but yeah, man. So regrets. If you caught me 10 years ago, maybe, but I feel like since I've been in my forties, you know, this isn't my saying, but I've heard people say you gotta live life through the windshield, not literally, but figuratively, and not the rear view mirror. And so no, man, I I really like the choices I made because they were the choices I made for my family at the time. And they were choices that I was motivated to make and my family was excited for me to make. And when I wanted to go back. My family was cool. My daughter's 12. I'm not cool to her anymore. Like, she wants to talk to her friends and and go out and have dinners with her girlfriend. She's fine. So I did a movie in New York uh, for Netflix. I may be doing one that I can't talk about this summer. And uh, I've even gotten some weird offers to direct horror stuff. And I've always loved horror movies my whole life. I was obsessed with Asian cult horror films when I was a kid. So it's something that's always kind of been in my brain, but I've never found the right project you know there's always someone out there that i felt i'll put it to you this way i want to be the guy that changes horror because it changes more quickly than any other form of film the way james wan who created saw changed horror which made my movie i know you did last summer a freaking comedy next to what he did which is terrifying so so screw james wan no i I love james wan but i want to make one that changes it again so that james is like doing a podcast and he's like, "Yo, will screw Freddie Prince Jr. He made saw comedy. And so I've, I've written a couple things. I've had a couple things sent my way. There's a, a, a short that I might do with shutter, which would be really, really fun if I end up doing it, but their shoots are like guerrilla style, independent, like more like film school movies where you have a week to shoot. And it's a horrible schedule and all your friends are doing you favors, but that can be fun too. So, you know, those are all things that kind of finance my wrestling addiction and uh, and keep my wife off my back and my accountant off my back. <laughs> Well, Freddie, I can't thank you enough
2: for, for joining us. So you're, you're one of the guys that I'm so happy you love our business because you, you've been a true blessing to our business. And it's been a blessing to know you. It's been a blessing to be your friend. It's, it's been a lot of fun. And I'm glad I'm working with you on a project now we can't talk about. But, you'll, you'll I know, but I'm going to see you in
0: two weeks. I'm going to see you in just a couple of weeks. Well, that's right, we will, we're yeah. Gonna have, yeah, we're going to have dinner. Um, my back's going to be nice and strong and we're going to have dinner.
2: Yep. Last time we had dinner, you couldn't make it because your, your back was bad. Yeah, well,
0: you know, I've taken we a, lot more, we I've taken a lot more hits than you have, J.B. We,
2: we sent the bill to your room just you know, okay. just, <laughs> just to make Every you feel part of it, you know.
0: Good, yeah, uh-huh. now I'm back in the family. That's yeah. great. Thank One you. time we were
2: on the overseas tour, there was like three bar bills sent to Paul Heyman's room.
0: <laughs> three well, different people what
2: pre- they he do with barbells <laughs> three, di-
0: three yeah. different people came up different, with the
2: same asshole three drink. different people <laughs> not meaning at the same time to know the other guy had done it it signed a bill to Paul Heyman Drew
3: <laughs> Freddie I, I want to thank you for being on this thing and you're you're truly one of those guys that come through you know we had a lot of, a lot of guys you 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 left the business better after you yeah. left them what what you came But we appreciate it thank you
0: Oh, man. I Thank you so much. Appreciate you saying that, brother. Big time respect to you. You know that. We had a lot of we had a lot of non-work conversations and you, you know, I love you, brother. You know, I love you,
2: brother. Thank you. And Anyways. Freddie, I'm sorry for calling you Scooby, but I love
0: Scooby. I'll take it from you all day, man. Just, <laughs> from you only. You get, the, you get the Scooby. I guess Cena gets kusher. And uh, I, I had some other jerk nicknames. I'm sure that no one told me, but I don't know.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the
0: worst was the guy Who was the gentleman that came with you you got a guy
2: who came with you right
0: angelo yeah angelo, angelo.
2: yeah he got the worst i called him scrappy oh
0: god he wasn't <laughs> even in the damn movie that's right well, no, he I was just, just a hardworking writer who had nothing <laughs> to do with <laughs> it i know all. but he was like we knew, so i could scooby and scrappy
3: <laughs> so <laughs> he ended up staying another like 10
0: years after i was whatever yeah then? <laughs> the thing I mean, about it,
3: Freddie, is John goes to sleep every night with a little Scooby Dog little stuff. <laughs>
0: I love Scooby. <laughs> that was the that was the rap gift they gave me at the end of the movie instead of a bonus. <laughs> That's great, Freddie. Thank you so much. Thanks, gentlemen. I'll talk to you again for sure.